Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, uh, Funky Fusters, to another episode of The Few with me, Boo, and the legendary Sean, uh, Sean Sewell. And this is our first podcast out of lockdown, Sean, down in these parts. Well, down in your parts, yes, for Sydney, absolutely. So great to great to be back. Great to see you make back at home, away from the farm again, and uh, you know, getting out and about. Yeah, I'm having urban shock being back amongst traffic and living life outside of, of the bubble. I think I quite like living in that virtual world to some degree. So, it's a, yeah, but it's certainly nice to to get out, out and about. You're back from the Northern Territory. You're obviously uh, only a few days away from purchasing a property somewhere up there, Tennant Creek-wise, yeah. relocating. Well, yeah, some of the, uh, the the government guys that I met up there as part of October Business Month did four keynotes to and I went to and from NT three times in three weeks. So that's been a bit of a bit of a hike, but it was great. But they said, we're going to call you a temporary NT resident, uh, given that I spent so much time there. I spent two months in the NT this year already. So, yeah. Nice to see you in the NT, mate. Okay, guys, I'm super excited about today's guest who is well and truly living a deeper purpose. And I guess using that deep purpose to drive his business as an entrepreneur into well and truly into the few stratosphere. So really excited to have a TEDx speaker, entrepreneur, advocate for all things uh, reconciliation. We today have on the show uh, Dion. Dion, now, it's always an issue with vows. Devow or devow? Devow. Devow. Mate, welcome so much. Thanks thanks for joining Sean and I uh, on the few today, mate. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your journey. What was it like being... Dion, when you first started to realise that life was happening around you, the, the young, the restless. <laughs> young and the restless. Uh, well, speaking of Darwin in the, in the Northern Territory, I'm actually from Darwin, born and bred, and uh, my parents moved up there when my mother was eight months pregnant with having me uh, because in those days, we're talking about the early 70s, late 60s, it was quite racist in Queensland. So they heard that the Northern Territory was the better place uh, for, you know, Aboriginal people to thrive and uh, have uh, education, uh, employment and so forth. So I kind of, I grew up in Darwin. It's my hometown, even though my country is in uh, Northern Queensland. My father's side, we're Aboriginal and we're the traditional owners from, of the Mumbara people, which are a group of islands off the coast of, of Townsville uh, called Palm Island. Um, and on my mother's side, we're Torres Strait. Torres Strait Islanders. So my country's in Darnley Island in the Torres Strait and Palm Island, Northern Queensland, but I grew up in, in Darwin. So I had quite a good, fairly religious, strict, but very loving family. I came from that. And, and so I was very good at sport when I was young, went all around the country representing the Northern Territory for athletics. But the time I was 13, I'd been all around the country. You know, so we weren't rich, we weren't, weren't poor, but my parents were hard workers. And um, so I always had a good sense of myself and being brought up in a Christian home, you know, I always had faith and really lean towards that to to do and strive to whatever it is that I wanted to do in life. And because I was quite good at sport from an early age and did quite a lot of traveling, especially for a black kid, you know, from Darwin, 
with a lot of our other Aboriginal um, kids actually traveling the country, you had kind of a little bit of a different experience and a different outlook on life than maybe others, maybe other even non-Indigenous kids. But I had a good sense of myself from a very young age and always had my faith to fall back on. So I had a bit of, not that I'm a very confident person, but I use my faith to give me confidence and to kind of strive for things that I thought that I couldn't do myself. I relied on that to get through. So yeah, just an answer to your question, I kind of, I'm not really sure, but I had a good sense of myself from a very early age and I had a lot of direction for my parents around what might be the best ways to achieve in life. And that was firstly through education. Although even though a lot of our people are good at sport, you know, you can't rely on that. And I'm glad that I didn't because I didn't fully use that, the gift that God had given me in that in that field. I probably could have went on and done something really special and, and done, achieved quite a lot in that area, but I didn't, unfortunately. So I had to do things use other gifts that I've that I've been blessed with but education was a was a big part of that so I left the Northern Territory when I was in my late teens after I'd finished school to go to university because my I'm the son of a teacher and um, was drummed into me from a really early age that education was key and especially back in those days my mother was I um, mean when I was growing up she was a cleaner but worked part-time and studied part-time for eight years to become a teacher and I really saw how you know even though we weren't poor it really changed the socioeconomic status of our household overnight by her attaining a degree. So I'd really kind of firsthand experience of seeing how an education can change people's lives, especially from that uh, household perspective. And um, so I moved away to, to Canberra and attended university. I graduated with a Bachelor of Applied Science in Health Education in 1998, and I've lived in Canberra ever since. But I think that was kind of the grounding around the things that I have achieved in life because I kind of always thought I was okay academically, but I was quite lazy. <laughs> and so I never really tried very hard at school. And because I thought I was going to be this Olympic athlete, I thought, well, I'm not going to need school. I'm going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to represent Australia for athletics. And that obviously never happened. So I was glad that I had that jumped into the back of my head around education being something that could really set me up for life. And so that's what I've done. And it's been the basis, that degree has really been the basis of everything that I've achieved because it's showing me that I can put the time and effort into completing something that really gives you a little bit of a head start in life. And I think that more and more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are starting to see that and using education as a way to, to thrive. You mentioned you know, that, that you know, getting the degree kind of was the foundation for progressing you forward. So once you finish that degree, maybe give us an indication of what, where did you move forward then? I mean, obviously you, you have, you know, business and things now as well, mm. and, but did you, did you first move into being uh, employed with somewhere or did you jump straight into the, um, into the fire, so to speak, and, and get into the world of entrepreneurship? No, I, w- I worked as an Aboriginal health worker for 15 years. So I worked in Aboriginal health. I worked in uh, hospitals and social work departments I did a little bit of a policy and then I went over to, to justice. I ran what they call the circle sentencing courts here in Canberra. They're Aboriginal specific courts. They're all around the country. And those courts are all about reducing recidivism um, rates for Aboriginal people in the justice system. So you work with the magistrate and a, gr- a group of elders to come up with a culturally appropriate sentencing options for Aboriginal defendants instead of throwing them into jail, especially for, for petty and minor repeat charges. Uh, and then I ended up working at the Australian National University uh, in the Jabal Centre, which is the Indigenous Support Centre for Aboriginal undergrads and postgrad students at the Australian National University. And I wanted to work there because it was ranked number one in the country at that time, I think maybe fifth in the world, and really wanted to help 
you know, people the way that I was helped um, through the Nunnawal Centre, which is the equivalent of that at Canberra University when I was an, an undergrad. So I really kind of enjoyed working there and was able to give back, I think, a little bit to our youth and our up and coming, you know, doctors and lawyers and archaeologists and anthropologists and their professionals today, because this is going back, you know, 11 years. But, um, you know, it was really interesting. But that's where I kind of fell into business because I at the time was looking for some and I traveled extensively as an Aboriginal health worker across the country promoting health promotion programs for government departments through a contract um, that I was working closely on with a friend and other um, Aboriginal people over a, a period of three years and I just I saw you know the clothing the promotional materials that we were wearing how that really re resonated and connected with the Aboriginal people and communities that we went to because it had Aboriginal design and themes and colours and so forth and I thought oh when I come back home and uh, when I come back I'm going to look for some Aboriginal clothing online because you know, it kind of really gives you a sense of pride when you're wearing something it doesn't matter what you wear you know you, if you're wearing something that looks good and makes you, it makes you feel good and makes the day a, a, that much better. So I was looking for this Aboriginal clothing online. And this is, again, this is going back uh, over a decade. And at that time, there wasn't many Aboriginal clothing labels around. There's probably three in the country at the time. And so I looked online, I thought, oh, none of them were really my taste because I've got my own kind of you know, style and whatever. So I thought, well, because there's nothing online, I might just create my own. And so I worked with a graphic artist and came up with about 10 different designs and got them printed up and sold them to friends and family. And it resonated with them as the idea resonated with me about, you know, wearing cool clothing with Aboriginal design, colours, art, symbolism and language. So again, it was kind of just about me finding something that I could wear and feel comfortable and, and really promote being a, a First Nations man. But again, it, it resonated with other people in the community. And so then I got a basic website and that kind of was the start of my the creation of my first business uh, Darkies Designs and I, and I purposely called it Darkies Designs because I've always been really proud of the fact that not only am I Aboriginal but I'm dark skinned and growing up I'd, I'd get teased a lot because I was always the blackest one in the room you know and which is fine you know it's like this is from my own, own mob and that was cool but I, I kind of thought well why are they always giving me crap about the fact that I'm dark I love being black and uh you know, there's no mistaking, you know, it's like, and don't get me wrong, I, I wouldn't really care what shade of black I am, but we all come in different colours and shades. And uh, and so dark is kind of a bit of a way to say, well, you know, I'm Aboriginal, but I'm also dark skinned and I'm really proud of that. And I think most Aboriginal people are, and some of the designs that I've created over the years have really given people, especially Aboriginal people that are lighter skinned, the opportunity to be able to promote the fact that they are Aboriginal without saying it and having people question that. And so one of the designs that I had was one of the first ones that said something like 100% Australian and it had like just Australia with the Aboriginal colours kind of superimposed over that design. And it was really something that um, a lot of our uh, people, again, the light skin, uh, lighter skinned Aboriginal people really kind of loved that design because it's like, I think sometimes maybe they get sick of explaining to people that just because that they're light skinned, you know, that they're not fully Aboriginal. And I think that that's a, a really kind of offensive when you, because you're either Aboriginal or you're not, right? So, you know, if you think about other races, if you're Italian, your your mother's white, your, your father's Italian and your mother's white, you know, they never ask, well, how, how much percentage of Italian are you? Yet when it comes to, you know, people of colour, you always kind of ask questions like that that are actually quite offensive. So. You know, it was kind of a way to educate, to start conversations, even the name Darkies, like what people say, well, how can you even call it that? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's also about, you know, making it historically that word was, yeah, 
reclaiming it. And it's taken a long time. If I had named the business Devour Designs, you know, like I think it would have been a lot more successful a lot earlier. Uh, you know, over time, you know, the market's flooded now with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clothing labels and, and so forth. And I think that's great. And there's probably businesses that have superseded anything that I could have imagined to do with respect to, to my label. But I think that, you know, there was a message that I was trying to portray in the beginning. It was a bit about fun. It was a bit about education. It was a bit about pride and, uh, you, know, you know, really valuing Aboriginal art and culture and language as something that everybody should participate in and embrace and be comfortable in wearing. And I think over the last decade, I've seen so many more non-Indigenous people feel more comfortable about wearing and using and you know embracing Aboriginal culture and language and art. And I think that that was one of the things that I really wanted to see within the label as well. Is it part of part of what you'd say is your purpose is with the brand to help people to feel more comfortable and connect and engage? Definitely. I think I think initially it was more about helping Aboriginal people to feel more comfortable and proud about the fact that we are Indigenous and, and sharing that through the clothing that we wear. But as the years have progressed, I think that it's now more kind of generic and that, you know, there's still that, the want and then within the business and the purpose to do that, but also I would really like to see more and more non-Indigenous people really feel more and more comfortable about wearing you know aboriginal designs without second guessing themselves you know and saying oh i'm not aboriginal can i wear this you know so yeah, yeah. because if you're thinking it from a, from a business perspective i mean we only make up black fellas there's three percent of the population maybe so if i'm only selling to them i'm not gonna make any money so yeah, yeah. Do you know what i mean like i'll still make money but we want to be able to you know broaden our horizons and expand to all of australia so that you know everybody is supporting aboriginal businesses and everybody is buying aboriginal themed and designed and products business has become such a big thing in the last say i think five years from what i've seen and when i was in business there was hardly any anybody any blackfellas that i could talk to about business now there's more and more and that's because of things like the indigenous procurement policy and the fact that we are now becoming valued within business sectors across the country because you know of these policies that have been developed and implemented to make sure that we have a fair go and we are included in business. Can I unpack that a little bit? I mean, in a perfect world, it wouldn't matter what our backgrounds were, the colour of our skin, you know, but unfortunately, there's this blanket of ignorance that is is part of being being a human being and, and bringing yeah. awareness to that. And can you maybe give us some insights? You mentioned really early on in the piece that your family relocated from Queensland to NT yeah. because of racism, right? Yeah. Uh, so what was your experience with that? And it's a powerful driver for you now. But what was the feeling inside the family unit and what was the sense of the barriers that were that were in place? I mean, you, you must be so proud of your mum and what an incredible woman yes. to invest that time and effort into getting a degree and becoming a teacher. That's phenomenal. But And that, that must have been huge for you as a role model. But did you have a sense of the, the issues around racism and how do you deal with that within your friendship group, your family group? And like, what, is, what, is it, what did it feel like? I was fairly lucky in Darwin and that I'm not saying that it's not racist or that, that racism doesn't occur there. But again, going back to the reasons as to why my parents moved from Queensland to the Northern Territories, because they heard on the black grapevine that Darwin was a better place um, and that it wasn't as racist. And they were 100 percent correct. I don't think I, I would have achieved the things that I've achieved in life. And had I grown up in Queensland and I, and I don't think that my parents would have been so successful in their lives as well. Did you experience it in your travels? You said you kind of you're pretty well traveled as a kid. Yes. I think we were kind of quite 
novel, the black kids that were representing this, you know, the Northern Territory for athletics and going around to these different places. And, you know, we'd be the, always the ones that journalists would come and want to interview and take photos of because a lot of us were running, but we were running bare feet. You know, we didn't have spikes because we didn't have the money. We got attention, but it wasn't really negative. And again, there were incidents of racism growing up in the Northern Territory that I, I experienced, but none that I could think of that were really, for me, you know, like that really shocking because it's very multicultural. A lot of non-Indigenous families marry into Aboriginal families. There's Greeks, there's Italians, there's Filipinos, it's close to Asia. There's a lot of Asian influence, Portuguese, Portuguese Timorese. People kind of stuck to their groups in high school, but there was also the opportunity for us to, you know, really celebrate who we were. We all knew who we were and, you know, there were kind of some factions and a bit, little bit of friction growing up. But for the most part, I think, and because there's so many Aboriginal people, there was a real sense of solidarity and, you know, we kind of all stuck together and and supported each other and didn't really have to isolate or whereas aboriginal kids and students i think from other areas and down south the population's not as dense when it comes to the community so i kind of feel like seeing my kids even though their mother's non-indigenous they're still very identifiably aboriginal and people of color but at their schools there's not a lot of Aboriginal people that all went to private schools and, and even the Aboriginal kids that were there, a lot of them, you know, notably Aboriginal, they're quite fair. So it's been very different, I think, for my, for my children. But I think we're also lucky very much because we're based in Canberra, that everyone here is so politically correct and, and very well educated. So, you know, even my children have been lucky in the sense that we haven't really had the racism that my parents grew up with or even their cousins or my cousins um, that they experienced growing up in different parts of the country, like Queensland, which I think think today is still, it's just a very different place. It might be a look, it might be, you know, you're standing in a shop and, you know, you're overlooked by someone standing next to you. They get served before you, you know, you've followed in a store, all of that racial profiling. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like you, you just yeah. ra uh, racially profile a lot more in other places than the ACT or, or the Northern, Northern Territory, not to say it doesn't happen. Do you think the fact that, Dion, that you had a, I suppose, a, a fairly, you, you didn't have a lot of really negative experiences around, you know, people being discriminatory or racist or whatever it is, do you think that's helped to create, because you, you come across as someone who's very accepting, very open, uh, very understanding of anyone, irrespective of race, creed, skin colour, whatever it is. Do you feel that not having been exposed to a lot of the negative stuff might have contributed to how you see things now? I think, yeah, may, maybe. And maybe it's more of my upbringing. Because, again, don't get me wrong, I, I have experienced racism and it's not nice. Um, sometimes it's more overt than covert. But I can't get away from it because I'm black. So wherever I go, I'm racially black uh, profiled. You know what I mean? And I do remember being followed around from uh, store to store in Darwin as a nine-year-old. I remember I was buying presents for my parents' birthdays that were coming up soon, they're two days apart. So I was going from Kmart to Coles, where he had two shops, Kmart to go, I was looking for stuff. And there was this woman following me. And I'm thinking, what is she following? Who, do I know her or something? Anyway, I was halfway outside Coles going back to Kmart and she pulled me up and identified herself as a store detective. And I had to show her all the things that I'd bought and I had to produce receipts. And so, and I thought, well, that was weird. But so, you know, like not a good thing. I was thinking, lucky I didn't steal <laughs> because, you know, she was right on me. And I said, well, you know, like, I think I asked her why, 
why was she asking me these questions about whether or not I bought something? And she said, oh, we were looking for someone that had your description. So obviously a black kid around about my age. You know what I mean? So it's just like, hello in Darwin. Every second person looked like me, you know? <laughs> the population of Aboriginal people up there is, you know, fairly high. So, I mean, that wasn't that bad, but uh, I do remember being assaulted by a police, uh, police officer when I was 14, just because I was standing with a group of Aboriginal people outside of this uh, handicaps, it was called it was like a takeaway shop that kids used to hang around. It wasn't very late at night, but, you know, he just came up with his baton and just struck me with it in the stomach. So, yeah, these things, these things do happen. The stories that I've heard of my friends as teenagers being picked up by the coppers, thrown in the paddy wagon and taken out bush and, and then having to walk back from down the track, you know, uh, and or they're being thrown in paddy wagons because, you know, like a lot of us kids used to hang around the streets. It was down and the, the 80s boring. So we used to just go out, you know what I mean? There was nowhere really to go. So just hang around the streets and stuff, whatever, you know. But they'd chuck us in people in paddy wagons and then take them for a drive really recklessly and drive over you know, the islands in the in the streets so that these kids are being thrown around in the back of the paddy wagon. Do you know what I mean? So I wasn't ignorant to the incidents of racism. I just, I just kind of feel like I was very lucky in terms of not having, being exposed as an individual very, well, as much as other people I knew anyway. But I, I always have had a positive look on life. I think it does have to do with, about looking at people with love, even the ones that, yeah, you know, even loving your enemy, you know what I mean? Like, that's hard. <laughs> And I think as a, you know, as a person, like I'm not young, I'm not old, but, and I had some success, you know, there's a lot of, when, once you get a little bit of success, people come at you, you know, um, it's that tall poppy syndrome. And so, you know, it's really hard to look at people that are, are clearly out to, to tarnish or, you know, affect your reputation in a negative way. Um, it's really hard to look at them with love as well. So it's, it's not only racism, it's, it's, it's kind of that sort of stuff too that can occur, especially if you're black and you have the success. Sometimes you get that from people that you wouldn't necessarily think that you would and, and that meaning your own people. So, One thing I was taught uh, from uh, one of my past mentors, which was that concept of uh, loving or understanding somebody else so you can understand them, which means that it's not a negative thing, but you don't have to accept their behaviour. Yeah, because accepting is making it okay. We don't want to make it okay. But if you understand that, okay, that person's got this paradigm, that person's ignorant, or that person is whatever their story or their background, their beliefs yeah. are, you can understand it. We don't have to accept it and take it on as, as something yeah. that we carry. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a, there's a fine line between turning the other cheek and really, you know, understanding what it is, but also standing up for yourself and saying, you know, I don't need to take that from you. And sometimes that means cutting people out of your lives. And I've had to do that a lot. But that's okay. Like, as you get older, you know, when you're young, you think you've got to be popular, you've got to have people surrounding you. And, you know, the more friends are better. It's really, that's not really reality, is it? It's like, I think if it's you've got quantity, a, it yeah. becomes quality versus quantity. And I think, yeah. I think early on, because we're trying to find who we are, we're attracting that a broad set of values. But as we narrow it down to our own values, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, that person doesn't fit with my values anymore. And it's not that you don't like them or yeah. they just don't fit anymore, you know. And, and it's really hard. They're really hard to find sometimes, you know. It's like, people that are on the same page and have the same beliefs and ethics as you and and don't envy you or you know they want to support you and you know just that that aren't hard work <laughs> so um i don't think anybody should be you know i don't think friendships should be hard work so no, no. marriages yeah because you have to <laughs> that's your part you put the time you make the time and the effort to do that because that's a commitment you know um but i think for friends if and relationships outside of that if it's hard then i think you just need to re really rethink 
well, is this good for me or them? Maybe just say, see you later, bros. <laughs> we both got to get you both got to get something from that. It's it's a if it's a give and take situation, then it's time to exit. Who has time for that stuff? I certainly don't. It's like I'm flat out scratching. So, but yeah. Does that answer your question? I can talk Absolutely. a lot. It's very long-winded sometimes. <laughs> no, that's good, mate. So, Dion, you're starting to spread yourself wider and wider here. You've got your uh, year, your IT business. You're also now a consultant helping businesses with their reconciliation action plans, helping indi- other Indigenous businessmen and women figure out how to get into, into that market. You speak a bit more. What do you see as some of the biggest barriers to understanding when it comes to reconciliation? Are people fairly positive and embracing everywhere you go? Are there elements where people are like, what are we doing this for? What's some of the experiences and, and what can we learn like as a population around the importance of reconciliation and how to be conciliatory in, in our approach to the First Nations people? Look, I think there's a little bit of that. I think there's a little bit of ignorance. I think there's a little bit of uncertainty. I think there's a little bit of self-doubt when it comes to, because, but there was also a lot of goodwill. You know, people just don't know how to do it. So when you're talking about reconciliation action plans, I think organisations and businesses understand now that they're providing programs or services to that particular part of the community, which that being First Nations people, that it's probably a good framework to have in terms of being able to connect. And that's what is one of the the amazing things, positive things about having a reconciliation action plan in your organisation or your business is that you can have all of these different ways to be able to connect with the Aboriginal community, whether it's locally or nationally, and use that as a way to be able to celebrate things like NAIDOC, Reconciliation Week, you know, whatever it is that is kind of happening in the Indigenous space when it comes to any sort of celebration, even Australia Day, because there's, there's still a lot of contention around, what do we celebrate? You're black, you're white, you're, you know, you're half black, you're half white, what do you celebrate? Australia Day or Invasion Day? <laughs> but, you know, if you don't have a platform or a framework or something to work from in terms of being able to talk about these issues or participate, then it's very hard. So, you know, reconciliation action plans are a good way for non-Indigenous organisations to do that. And it doesn't matter if if you don't know what you're doing. It's about the fact that you're creating something and implementing something within your organisation or your workplace or your company or your department that allows you to be able to develop things, to be able to interact. And that interaction can help with community engagement, a relationship building, employment, other programs that are, are, are around celebration of events like what I've talked about, NAIDOC and Reconciliation Week and, and so forth, Australia Day, getting advice about how you can tailor your programs and services or your business to be able to have more Aboriginal people in any kind of line of business or to be able to get them to understand how they can participate in your program or access your service. And I think that what I found is that, especially in business, because Aboriginal people are becoming more prevalent within the business sector and that sometimes even tenders within government departments will be asking questions about, you know, when businesses are applying for these jobs or contracts or grants, do they have there's certain criteria around what's your involvement with the Aboriginal community? Do you have any Aboriginal employees? Do you have a reconciliation action plan? It's becoming embedded in everyday mainstream life. And that places value on Aboriginal people and our participation, whether that's as an employee, whether that's as a business partner, whether that's as a consultant, even having that connection that gives a company the opportunity to say, 
within their work and what they're doing with respect to their business, that there is some interaction with Aboriginal people and that they are um, making an impact in a positive way. So I think that's, I think it's really important. And I think that, I think as we go along in our journey towards reconciliation, that understanding the value of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our culture will become more prevalent. And it, even if it is at the moment, you know, the fact that it's becoming more embedded in business and, the, and that people have to participate, I don't see that as a bad thing because in, in the process, they're learning about Aboriginal people and they will come to value our culture, you know, and I think that there's this perception out there in contemporary Australian society that our culture is dead, that there's not many Aboriginal people around, but we're becoming stronger and more educated and participating in, in every area, health, education, justice, business, you know, in all the different areas and disciplines. And as time goes on, we're going to become more and more skilled more and more professional, more and more successful in every area. And, and that's including the arts and sports and things which we already thrive and do well at in any way. But I'm looking forward to, to a day when non-Indigenous Australians, all non-Indigenous Australians really value Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and our culture, and really embrace it as part of being Australian. And I think that that's what reconciliation is all about. We can never go back to the way that it was and I think the word is kind of misleading in, in when you're talking about that. But, you know, we've been on this journey for over 20 years now. So, you know, let's not fix what not, what's not broken. It's, it's a word, right? But it's uh, a way and a vehicle for us to use to bring people together. And that's what I, I really like. Uh, that's what I really love about it, actually, and especially when we're talking about talking about business. Yeah, one one of the things that, you know, and you used the word before, Boo, uh, ignorance. And I recently was in the NT three times for three weeks, as I think I mentioned earlier, yep. either before the we started the podcast or earlier in the podcast, and visited Nullumboy and went to the Cultural and Arts Centre there. And one of the local artists was actually talking about it and he said, look, because I didn't understand that the imagery that they're painting onto, you know, didgeridoos and other other objects has actual meaning or language or, or something to it. I had no idea. And he said, the thing is that, and I was showing, you know, a lot of interest in it and trying to get him to, and he goes, he said, I see that there's two ways people can look at this. They're either willfully ignorant, so they're choosing to be ignorant, or they just don't know what they don't know. And yep. when I look at it that way is, and, and as you're saying there with about the whole reconciliation process is I have not had a lot of exposure to the Australian Indigenous culture at all. Like it's just not been something, being born in Melbourne, growing up in Sydney, I started to get exposed to it three years ago when I went around Australia in, in a caravan. So it started to open my eyes to, oh, okay, interesting. And there's this artworks and there's there's this heritage, there's the way that the culture started to work, but only very surface level. And, I, and as you say, I mean, I think as people get more understanding, more knowledge and a feel for you know, the culture itself, it'll build that respect. It'll build that thing of saying, wow, this is thousands of years old, this culture, or tens of thousands of years old, this culture is just incredible. It's got this history. It's This is how things were passed down, generation, generation, communicated. You know, this is what art's about. And I think those things, it's it's that naivety, it's that lack of being exposed, I suppose, just not knowing that is creating a, a gap, like a, an us and them separation. Yes, and I think that's that's what I was kind of talking about earlier about being brought up in Darwin. Even the non-Indigenous people there, because I've been exposed to Aboriginal people and culture, they're a lot different to the people down south. And when I, I remember in my first year of university, one of my first classes, well, actually it wasn't my first class, a, a few people had said in that first year, oh, you're the first Aboriginal person I've ever met. I thought they were joking. Like, seriously. Then after the third person said, I said, oh, these fellows are 
And I thought myself, well, you ain't the first white per- person I've met. You might be the craziest, but you know, like <laughs> I, I had the weird this, this this weird experience when I was in uh, I was cycling from north to south in Vietnam in the Ho Chi Minh Highway, which was only just opened. And as I was riding my bike there, people would just stare, and they would they'd be on their mopeds and all the Vietnamese for like two hours, just following you, staring at you, and grabbing the hairs on your arm. And for me, that was the first time I'd ever felt like. I'm the only one of who I am. And it was a kind of a surreal experience. Mm. But what was it like when you, I mean, you moved from your family, your comfort zone, you know, you clearly, there's clearly something driving you to make these decisions, right? Because it's anytime you're going out there and you're being the only one, mm. you're risking something. I know you've got a positive mindset. So clearly you're a bit like me, Sean, you know, who gives a fuck if someone thinks something like that? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> You know, uh, but what can you share with other people who who might be afraid of that? I'd say to just go for it because sometimes people are, are so comfortable and they don't want to leave their little space of comfort. But I, it really restricts you in terms of your learning and education and knowledge and experience and just your development as a, as a person, as a human being. And I think even though I was driven to, because my motivation was to get a degree, right? So I would probably have been gone anywhere to get that. And it was just less distraction for me if I did it somewhere else. That was my thinking. So I would encourage people to do it because it's like I never, ever really looked back. And I'm not saying that um, Darwin is a terrible place. It was, like I said, had I not been brought up in Darwin, I wouldn't have had the experiences that I'd had that were so positive as a child, as a First Nations person, as a dark-skinned Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man growing up in a place such as the Northern Territory. But even that had its limitations. So for me, sometimes it's about thinking about, well, where are the opportunities? And for a lot of our people, we need to move away because you think about the mob that are in uh, places that are remote in remote areas, like you're talking about Tennant Creek, Catherine, even more remote, Maningrida, Tiwi Islands. You know, sometimes we have to move away to get an education. I'd like to see a time when there's more online learning and the uptake of that is increased when, it, when we're talking about Aboriginal people so that we don't have to leave our communities. But I think to develop and really grow yourself as a person, I think you do need to sometimes step outside of your comfort zone. And sometimes that means moving a long way from home, from your parents, from your family, from your friends. And it's not easy, but like I said, had I not done that, and I still have friends, lifelong friends that I met whilst um, studying at university, um, both black and white, um, but but a, a whole network of these, you know, professional Aboriginal people now, middle-aged Aboriginal people that are so successful that that's good for, for business as well. So I think in, in that respect, it's been really, it was a, a really positive thing thing for me, for me to do. But some people aren't there. You know, when you, I see, I've seen a lot of people actually take that step of faith and challenge themselves, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to be away from, you know, your support networks. And that's why when I'm talking with government departments where they're having these programs that might be around attracting more Aboriginal staff to their organisations in government and they're coming from different places all around the, from all around the country to Canberra, I'm telling them that but that's fine, but you need to have support mechanisms in there for them. Um, line them up with an Aboriginal mentor. Make sure that they have access to, you know, what's happening with respect to Aboriginal, you know, celebrations within the community. You know, making sure that their managers understand a little bit about Aboriginal culture, making sure that those non-Indigenous staff know, do some cultural awareness training and just try to understand what are the ramifications of an Aboriginal person living away from country when there's a death. You know, like they're going to be out of the work, workplace firstly because it takes might take two days to get home 
And then the, in some Aboriginal cultures, now they're dead out buried for a couple of weeks. So that means that you'll be out of the workforce for, you know, that staff member's gone, that places more pressure on your team. So if you don't have an understanding of that as a manager, then you're going to be saying things like, oh, they're going to walk about, you know what I mean? Which is really derogatory and disrespectful and racist. So there's all these things that non-Indigenous Australia has to think about too when they have these brilliant ideas about, oh, let's get some blackfellas in our organisation. Well, that's, it's, it's not that easy. You can get black people, even getting black people to come is the first hurdle, but then it's about making sure that you're going to be able to retain them. And, and to do that, it's hard work. And it's not hard work as in it shouldn't be done. It needs to be done for success. But it's about having the time, resources and investment in Aboriginal people to make sure that they succeed. And it's a two-way street. I'm not saying it's just for Aboriginal people having all the support, but it can be reciprocal in terms of the learning and the support and, the, and that journey. And that's, again, a, a, another good thing about reconciliation because I think it's, it's a two-way kind of street. Absolutely. And clearly you've had an interesting journey so far and, you know, there's, there's been twists and turns and university and then working with someone else and jumping into the entrepreneurial uh, fire, you know, from, from out of the pan, what is it, out of the pan and into the fire or yeah. something. So the uh, one question I have is, is, you know, what, what's something that you've learnt or, or a couple of key life lessons in, in your time so far that you would go back and you know, if you were to go back and teach to a younger version of yourself, what would those lessons be? I'd say probably to really embrace and use all your natural gifts, every one of them. And for me, it was sport and one of the things I, I do regret. I regret that I've never used one of my gifts to my fullest potential. So I do lots of talking to students at, in primary schools and so forth too. And one of the things I always say to them is, think about your, your careers now. These are kids that are like five, six going on to high school, start thinking about what you'd like to do in terms of a career now. And one of the things that everybody has a purpose, everybody has a reason for being on this earth, right? And one of those indicators about how you can figure out what it is that you're supposed to do is think about the things that are natural to you. So if you're a good talker, if you're a good sportsman, if you're good looking, if you're good at art, all of those skills can lead to something. If you're funny, you could be a comedian. If you're a good writer, you could be a writer, you could be a journalist. Um, if you're a good talker, you could be a reporter. Again, if you're a good sportsmanship uh, sportsman, try you know becoming a professional sportsman. And you don't have to go to university if that's not for you, but try to achieve at least the highest education that, that you can. So that, that, and that base level would be finish year 12. If you don't finish year 12, go to year 10 and do a trade. Do something that gives you the ability to be able to participate in the workforce. And, and like I said, for everyone, that's different. But if they don't start thinking about those things, like if you don't think about earlier on, if you're good at maths or you're good at science or you're good at, and you're not, you're not picking specific, you know, subjects around, you know, furthering your career into the future that might get you into university, then you're going to be left behind. Or you'll be like, oh, fire, I should have done that, but what am I going to do now? So, and again, identifying those things that you're good at are easy in yourself because you enjoy doing them, you know? So I would say to people, identify those, those key things that are natural to you, that are easy for you to do, and maybe use them as a way to secure or work towards a career further on down the track in your life because you have to work for a really long time and there's nothing worse than dragging your ass out of bed every day to go to a job that you might not a shitty job that you're not maybe not getting a lot of money for that you hate doing why not do something that you enjoy 
Why not do something that, that comes natural to you and that when you go to work, it's not like, it doesn't feel like work. Because even when you enjoy stuff, there's always those days, right? There's still plenty of time in your own business yeah. and anywhere else where it's a shitty day. But at least exactly. if you... At least if you enjoy it, you want it, you, it helps motivate you through that. Exactly. It's like, you know, I'm a good talker. So, and I get paid to go and talk to people. It's like, I love that. And they can pay me as well. So you know, that's one example of, of, of how I, what I use to, to say, you can make a lot of money doing really positive things, doing something that you enjoy something and something that you're good at. So that, you know, again, going back to every day, you don't have to wake up and go, oh my God, I'm going to have to go to work today. I hate my boss. And it's like, you know, I hate what I'm doing. And it might not be that you do that forever. And a lot of people will do the same thing in terms of a career for their, for their whole lives. But I'm telling, talking to these kids, but you might chop and change like me, you know, going from health to education to justice. Now I'm a business person. And amongst, you know, other things, being a father and, and whatever, and some of the things that I do, some of the programs that I run around, becoming a business person, an entrepreneur, and supporting other people to do that gives me a, a great deal of satisfaction and pleasure. And, um, you know, it's kind of like all the skills that I had being an Aboriginal health worker, helping people to access health and all that sort of stuff um, and community development, all those skills that I've attained have now transferred over into business. And so I'm still helping people. I'm making money by doing that and affecting people's lives in a positive way and bringing black and white people together through business. And there's all these, do you know what I mean? So it's like you might change your career path, but those basic core skill sets are still there that you really can be really good at. And you can use that wherever and whatever you're doing in life. And that really is a key strategy for success. And so it's like a lot of the things and a lot of the achievements that I've done, it's like, really, they're giving me an award for what, for that? And I, I, it's not like I was, you know, going out to do it for that. It was just something that I thought about doing and creating and um, it's cool, but, you know, you don't expect, but I think that that's a real way to validate that you're on the right path, I think. So I look for those signs. And I always look for opportunities. And that's another thing that I say, look for opportunities. Don't let any opportunities pass you by. And if they do, look for another one. The only thing that will stop them from doing what they want to do to succeed in life is themselves. So if you tell yourself you can't do it, then no one else is going to help you to do it. And you have to work hard. You know, nothing is going to be given to you. You have to work hard first and then something might be given to you, but <laughs> it's not after you know, you putting in that, the hard yards. And so, and I think, especially when I'm talking to Aboriginal kids, that's really important for them to understand. And, and when, I, when I'm talking to black kids specifically, I say to them, understand who you are and your place in the world and how valuable you are because you're an Aboriginal person, a First Nations person, and you are part of the oldest living culture in the history of mankind. And that's something that no one else can take away from you. And you need to be proud of that and you need to understand that how powerful that is and how important that is and how important our culture is and learn as much as you can about it and share that with your friends, share that with your family, share that with your, your children because, you know, we need to be able to maintain our people and our culture and really promote that and be proud of it and share it with others because it's a really precious, valuable thing that other people might not understand totally but if you stand up and be proud and understand that you are part of this, this oldest living race in the history of the world, then, you know, understanding that is a good thing. And it really can set you up in terms of being a confident person and really being able to understand, you know, your, your place and your space and who you are in the world. It's really important. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. 
Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organisation for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. That's, that's awesome. That's amazing. Dion, that's, thanks for sharing that. I mean, you're, you're, irrespective of skin color and background, you're clearly a, a fantastic role model and you've, you've embarked upon that journey to become a holistic human in terms of learning, putting yourself out there, trying new things. And you embody everything that is uh, being one of the one of the few. Really appreciate it, yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Cheers. This has been the Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.